Hey now, welcome to America's leading Formula One podcast. I'm Brian Saperstein. This is Rob Vale, and we are at the dirty side of the track. Rob, what are we doing this week? This week, we are going to be doing our crash course into Formula One. Uh, for all those new listeners, hopefully something to help educate them so when they're watching the races, things make sense. And for the veterans out there, it'll be ammunition for them to poke fun at us when we make lots and lots of mistakes and they can uh, revel in pointing that out to us. So really looking forward to this. But first off, I think we've got to do our social roundup, which I don't think is going to be that big this week. Um, I'm quiet off-season. This is the quietest part of the off-season. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go first and hand back to you because I've, I've really got like, I think this is the definition of scraping the barrel. It was definitely a slow news week out there. So um, every day I kind of just quickly go on and I Google F1 news just to kind of see what's going on. So because, you know, <laughs> I'm dedicated to the pod and I want to get some content for us. You'd be um, doing it anyway. You'd be doing it anyway. Yeah, I would. I would. I would. But I'm trying to sound professional. Um, <laughs> no more car uh, reveals were announced. So nothing there. Um Media still just chewing over, uh, is Lewis coming back or not? It's lazy journalism. I don't think there's a single quote from him yet, but they just want clickbait for, Lewis is not coming back. Well, And then you click in it, he might be. We're not sure. <laughs> um, he definitely is. Although, wait, I would just say this. In our very first pod, our very first dirty side, I did say, I think the way the season ended and any mess that comes from it raises the chances he doesn't come back. I still said it was very low, if you remember, and we disagreed. You said he's we coming did. back, we and did. I said I said there's a little more chance he's not. Now, I'm assuming all these journalists have listened to us and decided that uh, our little debate is the way they're taking it, but I, I, I think he's coming back 100%. I don't think we're going to see, you know, like Nico Hulkenberg or someone in a Mercedes next year. I think it's Lewis and George, but uh, anyway. I just yep. I, I I saw the same stuff you and it was like this, that doesn't make sense to me. So what really kind of capped off the week for me that it was a slow news week is I'm I, I can't remember if it was Tuesday or Wednesday last week. I'm googling what's going on and uh, four different outlets at least ran with the same lead story in F1 that uh, Alex Albon had visited the Williams garage and uh, while he was there he'd lost his keys. Um, <laughs> That, to me, just took the biscuit. Seriously, the number one news story we had on that day was that he had to go back and see if he could find his keys. And he was going to, he thought he'd lost them in the in the canteen and he was going to go like diving in the garbage out the back. But uh, someone found them. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully. You know, I actually saw, I didn't see the key part, but I also saw Williams and I think Formula One as well, show Alex show up at the Williams garage, as we call it in America, a garage. I don't know what a garage is, but uh they uh, they they kept showing the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I saw this already. I mean, I got more angles of this than the Zabruder film. But uh, so I also saw a couple of things, and I would just highlight one dirty side of the tracks. Twitter account got into a little dust up with a few listeners, use uh, Twitter users, Tweeple, whatever, about Abu Dhabi, and people are still pissed. So it is going to be really interesting to see when that wound heals and people move on because we are not ready. I am not ready. Um, you, and so you don't think that the news of you don't think Alex Albon losing his keys is enough to uh, put that news in the past and move forward. Potato, potato. Um, I would say if you're out on Twitter at F1 Dirty Side, we're always up for conversation. We're happy to jump in uh, and participate. And we always try to, to bring people together at the end. We're all friends here. Um, the second thing I'd highlight is actually my favorite sort of video. And this one's from Formula One. I usually follow the teams more, but Formula One.com had a YouTube where it was called the Karting Challenge, F1 Challenge with Lando Norris and Lawrence Barreto. And 
he's the, by the way, best title ever, F1.com senior writer. And I like him when they do the videos and he has articles, it's good. But I want, I want to be the F1.com senior writer. Uh, that's a great title. I'll be the F1.com junior writer. Call me, Lawrence. And so um, they did a carding challenge. And for those who are huge nerds like me and watch all this stuff and follow along, you saw Lando announce his cart, the Lando Norris cart, uh, probably mid-season-ish. It might have been summer break, give or take a little. I can't remember exactly. But I watched the videos on the McLaren channel and on Lando's channel. And it was really exciting to see the cart that, you know, kids can buy and use. And he went out for a spin. And so this was in Lando's cart and they went around the track. And the deal was Lawrence was going to get a one lap head start. And he went around to do a timed lap just to see what's what. And then Lando did one and Lawrence was not good. And that's That's very kind. Yeah, you saw it too. And when I say not good. I mean, it's relative to Lando, one of the best in the world. So I don't know what not good means. You know, what we need now is Lawrence to race regular people like us. So we can kind of have an you know, order of magnitude. We feel for it. But they gave him a two-lap head start. And there's a little, pit, little bit of me, a little part of me that always says, why do we do things like we do? So what we watched then was Lawrence go around for two laps. And then Lando started. Why would we watch race? Right. Why? For, no, right, exactly. Out of five laps, two, two out of five, 40% head start. But why did we have to watch Lawrence go around for two laps? Why didn't they just start it and say, Lando has to do five. Lawrence has to do three. Why did he have to do two full laps by himself as we're, what was the point of that? I like, anyway, maybe, maybe they I'm thought just, he might, he, maybe they thought he might get better and actually learn how to go full throttle. Because I think that was <laughs> when they were watching his early laps, when he was warming up, they were like, I don't think he actually knows how far the accelerator pedal goes down because it was like watching driving Miss Daisy as he was kind of on a little, a little scenic drive around the track. Oh, then he spun out. But I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, like I didn't want to, no one's tuning in to watch Lawrence Barreto drive a cart. We're tuning in to watch him race against Lando. But anyway, if you have time, go check it out. And then the last thing I'd say that's interesting out there is um, Rob and I around Christmas talked about good video games and gifts and things and things for me from Hanukkah that meant a lot. I would say Ridge Racer was a big deal for me as a kid in the mid nineties when I was in high school, I'm old uh, at the mall at the arcade, there was a Ridge Racer machine and it was the music, the graphics, the whole thing, just the greatest. And so I know it's not F1. I know it's, it's regular sort of street cars, but Ridge Racer was, was the best. And so arcade one up, not a sponsor has released a and it should be out in about three weeks a ridge racer stand-up console and it has four games on it uh, obviously ridge racer and then uh there's another one i forgot the name of it sort of the sequel and a couple other games but it is ridge a racer two it might be it's like it has a different name it's like rage racer or something but it's a stand-up six foot tall kind of deal light up um name at the top it's got the steering wheel it has pedals at the bottom, it's like 650 bucks though right now. So the price is a little high. Um, I'm sort of hoping that if everyone listening can tell their friends about the dirty side of the track, and if Rob and I can make three or four more dollars, which is more than the zero we've made so far, then that'll get me somewhere at the Ridge Racer Arcade, uh, I'm guessing in about 2042. So I'm very excited for that to happen. But it is so cool, and there are a lot of YouTubes about it. And uh, just even watching the old Ridge Racer clips, 
man, cars are the best. And just the expression with which they give, I know a lot of people in this world think they cars are to get from point A to point B. That is not true. They are wrong. That's why I love racing. That's why I love Formula One. Cars are an expression of who you are. Ridge Racer was the just the paramount of that in the mid-90s in an arcade. Love it. For those of you who want to check it out, go for it. I'm done. It was just if amazing. You think, if you think though that those few hundred bucks is expensive to drop on something that's essentially a game, uh, actually one thing I forgot in my piece was that there was a story during the rounds that there is a full-on F1 Ferrari simulator up for sale on eBay in the UK. It's the full Ferrari uh, body shell with the steering what? wheel, the pedals, three widescreen TVs, the PC, the whole thing. The whole it's the proper kind of barely used kind of simulator. What? 50, 55 grand. Uh oh. <laughs> it's in it's in Manchester, England, and that doesn't include shipping. So <laughs> fifty five thousand. You do realize those are that's uh, pounds. Or euros, uh, that's or dollars. It's it's forty thousand pounds, and that's about fifty five thousand dollars. So you're forgetting the crazy cost of cars today, fifty five thousand dollars, you can get a very nicely used, like BMW M3, uh, for that money, and go out in the real world and go real places and do real things. Or follow me here, sit in your basement alone, driving the simulator. I'll take the simulator. <laughs> but looking awesome. I mean, the green screen and you're in a simulator with put a helmet on. I reckon, you know, you could. Uh... <laughs> well, speaking of Ferrari, one last note. And just uh, I was today, I was behind uh, for those uh, married with children fans. I was behind a Cadillac Alante, or as Kelly Bundy would have said, the new Alante. And uh, yeah, it's really inside baseball. But the point is, it's one of the few American cars ever styled by Pininfarina, who did a lot of the yeah. Ferrari styling. And it is, it's an okay looking car, but every time I get behind a Cadillac Alante, I think to myself, how the hell did they decide to hire Pininfarina to do this? And why did Pininfarina agree to do a Cadillac? <laughs> and like, I see these, these Alantes driving around and it's like, it's like finding a unicorn at this point. Cause they're so old. And, and here in Chicago, they're so beaten up. I mean, we've got four inches of snow and I'm driving behind this Alante, which is really struggling for traction. Uh, anyway, it was fantastic. So Pin and Farina uh, should style the next uh, the next simulator. It would be awesome. Well, Rob, okay. today's podcast, yeah, today's podcast is really about talking about the ins and outs of Formula One, sort of the basics. And as you mentioned already, for those who are um, you know kind of new, it'll be helpful. Uh, my friend who mentioned this to us as we were thinking about it, uh, Jeff G out in, in Massachusetts uh, said, you know, I'd like to learn some of the ins and outs. But then some of my friends who know it already said, oh, we can make fun of you when you screw it up. So just like you said, please participate with us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, it's at F1 Dirty Side. We're going to kind of hit a couple of these topics. So, Rob, you want to you want to take us uh, into this? Yeah, sure. Um, best place to start is what is Formula One? Um, and that's a stupid one to start with. It sounds like a stupid one to start with, but let's let's go there. Um, open cockpit, um, open wheel, single seater format. Uh, for the people over here in the US, it's going to look a lot like an Indy car, but we'll cover later why it's different. Uh, it's the highest class of single seater under the FIA, which is the governing body. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that. There's a perfectly good Wikipedia page for anybody that really wants to read up on the FIA. 
Um, but essentially, it's been around since the 1950s, and it's kind of seen as the as the pinnacle for the for the driver. Um, race season has multiple races, which get called Grand Prix, which is much more uh, sexy than to call them races. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the number of races in a year has flexed loads down the years. And this year, we're going to get the biggest one ever with 23 Grand Prix. Um, drivers get awarded points where they finish. They all get added up at the end of the year to decide who wins the whole thing. Um, down the years, we've had 34 different drivers that have won it. Uh, Max Verstappen, ooh, let's not mention the last race, but Max Verstappen is the latest winner. Um, and you've got Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher, the guys that are top of the pop at the moment, which with t- uh, seven titles each. And just to bring it home, um, the US has actually had two champions, uh, 1961 Phil Hill and 1978 Mario Andretti and I think um, you were at a couple of those races weren't you Brian you were kind of still a youngster those days I was I was you know I have a friend uh, it's a shocker that I have a friend but a guy named Paul in Detroit got a huge speeding ticket the other day and we now call him Andretti (laughs) Um, so like the name Mario Andretti and we mentioned this the other day both his you know Formula One champion but also won an IndyCar championship uh, the Indy 500, I should say, sorry. And so Andretti still resonates pretty strongly in the U.S. Now, Phil Hill, not as much uh, from 61. And and as Rob mentioned, you know, the first Grand Prix was in 1950. So it's um, it's it's dating back a bit. Uh, 1950 was actually when I was graduating high school officially. <laughs> and uh, I'm excited to see this. But yeah, uh, Andretti, a name that still carries very strongly here in the U.S. Yeah, and I think it'd be good if, you know, if Haas can carry on improving and and uh, kind of build out that American team, I think it'd be really nice to then get an American sat in the seat as well. I think that would be really something for the for the country to pull behind, right? But I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. Sure. Sign me up. I've got a PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm ready. Sign me up. I don't think I fit in the car uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, they can make an American version of the car. Like, you know, Top Gear always had the American Stig, which is a little bigger. I want the American <laughs> F1 cars. I want air conditioning. I want satellite radio. Uh, yeah. Um, last thing I'll hit on, um, on this one is just kind of the, the engines that these things run. I'm not going to go into every single one they've had. There's been huge numbers of changes down the years, but kind of over the last 25 years, we've had three major changes. So from about 96 through to 2006, they were three liter V10s. 2006, they went to 2.4 liter naturally aspirated V8s. And in 2014, we came to the turbocharged 1.6 liter V6 era. Um, it's changed again uh next year but we 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 hit that last week so um please go listen to episode five i know the week before in fact episode five go check it out if you want to hear how the cars are changing for 2022 i mean you know as you mentioned the turbo hybrid era starting in 2014 that's kind of when they talk about some of the timings changing at courses and you know the fastest laps and it's just fascinating to me to hear the the different sound of the engines and i would argue uh, maybe I'm pissing people off. I think the current sound is not nearly as good as the high-pitched, higher-rev no. whine of the cars yeah. prior. And actually, in our lead-in on dirty side of the track, because we're purists, the car you hear is not a turbo hybrid, but rather one of those older cars. And it's just, I mean, it, when I grew up, that's the sound I associate with Formula One is the just bellow of that larger naturally aspirated humongous engine and and i miss that a little but uh i'll live all right so our next topic moving on formula one cars versus indy cars what's the difference a lot of people talk about the comparison there are videos out there you can find that talk about it but let's hit it quickly so you guys understand 
really what some of the differences are. First of all, Indy, right? Indy cars have two engine providers, Honda and Chevy. In F1, there are four, and we'll talk about what those are in a separate video when we look at the teams. Um, in terms of chassis, what I find interesting is all IndyCar is one common chassis from Delara, whereas F1, each car, each team makes their own and buy or buys their own. And there's a huge difference in horsepower output. So IndyCars are around you know, 550 to 700. Um, it's not a precise measure that's shared because it's a competitive advantage for teams to not know what another team may do as they tune their cars. But F1 is closer to 1,000 horsepower. So it's a significant difference for F1 cars. However, you may say, why don't F1 cars go like a million miles an hour faster? Why isn't it so different? Indy cars allow for major changes in aero. Just the aerodynamics, the kits, the cars that they take to each circuit. Um, you may know that like the Indy 500 is an oval. It just goes around and around. And I'm not going to be the guy on here knocking, just turning left um, as people <laughs> do for NASCAR. I'm not going to do that. Um, but when then Indy will go somewhere else like Road America, a good example, one of my favorite uh, sort of more uh, road type, even though it's not a road course, road type courses with lefts and rights and small and large turns. Indy changes the arrow dramatically, whereas in F1, the arrow is pretty much the same in place for all year. Now they can tweak it, the size of the wings, a few other things, but very minimal. So in this case, on like a super speed oval, Indy hits 240, 240 miles an hour, whereas uh, when you see F1 in a high-speed circuit, it's really around 220, 225. Oh, slow. Slow. I mean, <laughs> uh, two, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I, I, my friend got a ticket the other day. It was about 225. Uh, <laughs> he I was in a school. Take, I have yeah. got to take a, um, oh, or give an apology, you know, to um, the guys I live with over here now in the U.S. is that coming from uh, the U.K., there is a kind of a, a – misguided uh, perception that in all IndyCar is uh, left turn only, just like NASCAR. It just doesn't get any coverage. So you just kind of think, well, why do they just like driving in circles all the time? Um, but yeah, I've now that I've seen a few since I've been here on the TV, actually, the, it's more Formula One like when you see the, not the super circuit, uh, the overs right. like you say, but the other ones are kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's comparable. Road America in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, just uh, north of here, Chicago, in the Sheboygan Kohler area, is a beautiful course. You can actually go do a sunset cruise in your own car there. Not that I'm plugging it. They're not a sponsor either. But um, and then, you know, what's interesting is a few other quick things. Indy cars refuel during the race, whereas F1 cars stopped doing that years ago for a variety of reasons, safety and um, just a strategy component. So that's that's a big difference. And you know, if you want to try to kind of compare apples to apples, and it's hard to do. Most recently, there was a comparison in 2006 when both championships visited Montreal, sort of that man-made island outside of, of the city, which is a really cool race course. Um, so a Lola Ford Cosworth IndyCar set a fastest lap that day of one minute, 20 seconds, whereas the F1 race that year, Fernando Alonso, the fastest lap in a Renault at a one minute, 14 so again, acknowledging that on a straight or in a straight line or even on a super speed oval, IndyCar is going to take it. But when you start adding arrow and you start adding lefts, rights of different sizes, as Kimmy would say, airpins. Oh, no, sorry. That wasn't Kimmy. That was uh, my friend Antonio yelling at Kimmy. Airpin. Uh, it's six seconds a lap faster on a minute 20. So that's a big difference. And the last thing I'll say, as I mentioned this briefly in a different episode, IndyCar's aero team, Pato Award, took a ride in his sister team's McLaren F1 car. And after the session, he joked his neck hurt so bad 
that he needed to put a pad in the cockpit for his helmet to race to lean against. And Lando Norris made fun of him. He just had the G force of the left and the right was so much he couldn't keep up with it. So big difference from an indie car, successful indie car driver to go to F1. He just really struggled with the difference. It was a big, big, big eye opener for me on the difference between Indy and F1. Okay, let's hear the format of the race weekend itself then. Okay, so we've said we're going to have these 23 Grand Prix in uh, 2022, and they're all going to follow the same high level format. So whenever a race trucks around, you know, we're going to be having a, a practice session, we're going to be having qualifying, and then we're going to be having the race itself. And I say high level because last year threw a bit of spice in, which is the they dabbled with the new qualifying format, which is the uh, the sprint qualifying, which I'm actually a fan of. I don't know. I don't think me and you have spoken about this, Brian. I I, I like sprint. I do too. I, I would like to disagree and create drama, but I like <laughs> it as well. I mean, at Silverstone when uh, George was going around during sprint and everyone was cheering for him, uh, I got a British tear in my eye. I don't know what a British tier is, but I got one and I enjoyed it. It's a, it's a lot more regal than an American uh, tier. You know, the Queen yeah, has it, British tiers. Yeah. It sounds um, <laughs> sounds better to hear out loud. Okay, so let's uh, let's hit off what we got then. So we got the free practice sessions. Um, I think if it's a, a traditional qualifying a traditional set qualifying session, then we get two sessions on the Friday of about an hour and a half each, and then one on the Saturday morning. And then we head off into qualifying on the sprint weekends. They bin one of those uh, practice sessions. I think we just get the, the two practice sessions on the Friday before we get the, uh, the sprint qualifying. So let's, let's talk about the qualifying. So qualification is really to determine what order everybody starts the race in. And um, we've got two main ways of doing it. We've got the traditional way, which is we have on the Saturday afternoon, we have three phases over an hour where everyone goes around and does the fastest lap they possibly can before the clock runs out. And it's more recently been broken into these three phases, Q1, Q2, and Q3 that you'll have heard Brian talking about before. Uh, and after each Q qualifying session, we lose uh, five races, I think, in Q1, five races in Q2. So we end up with a top 10 shootout in Q3, who shoots out for pole to see who starts pole position on the Sunday. So that's traditional. Sprint that they bought in this time around, which I do, I do like because it makes things a bit crazier. Um, we still get that traditional Q1, Q2, Q3, but that's now on a um, uh, Friday to kind of bring some extra spice to the Friday session, I think, get some TV viewers and, and have the people that are paying the money to go to the track actually see something that's worthwhile, I guess. And, and, then, and, for, and for people in the States trying to work, uh, screw up <laughs> the entirety of your afternoon on a Friday, somewhere <laughs> around lunch, uh, usually. And then your friends start texting you, did you see, did you see Quali? Uh, no, I was trying to earn money, but thanks. <laughs> so that then that qualification now is, is is sets the order for the sprint race on the Saturday. So the sprint race on the Saturday is about third distance, I think they use as the calculation. Um, it's a basically a full on race, full you know, line up on the grid like you would on a normal race and do third distance. And then the, it's the finishing order of that sprint race that dictates the starting order for Sunday. Um, the only thing that's kind of the downside from it, my point of view, and I guess from the teams, is that um, you do worry that if people crash out in the uh, in the sprint race, it, that's that's a very expensive <laughs> crash yeah. out, right? I mean, and if you properly bin it, then I'm not sure you're coming back on Sunday. Well, two two things I think from the sprint as well. In addition to what you said, uh, making a mistake, and I think Pierre made a mistake. I don't know if it was in Britain or where. But he felt, and Carlos as well, both fell down the order significantly in the sprint. And it just ruins your starting position in the next race. So forgetting even if you crash the cost of that, but uh, you know, sliding off the track or spinning out has significant consequences for the race. 
that comes the next day. So that, that'd be my first. The second is uh, you're not technically on pole if you win qualifying. So if you finish Q3 first in a sprint session, great. Now you have to win the sprint to be considered <laughs> pole position. So like yeah, yeah. it feels a little disjointed there. Like, I don't know if they want to add a second tire award. Pirelli should bring two tires that they hand out to the drivers. One is, you know, qualifying first and then one is a sprint winner or something. But I, I don't like the way that finishing qualifying Q3 in first position is not pole. And the yeah. teams, you could hear on the team radio, hey, you finished in P1, but that's not pole. So, <laughs> and, and, and actually, one thing I kind of didn't mention on the sprint race, and uh, looking back at my notes, is that one thing I do like the way that they've decided to do on the the, the sprint race is that there's no podium and celebration uh, for the sprint race. Yes, you've done third distance. Yes, you've gone round, but they want to kind of keep the, um, I guess, the kudos of the standing on the top step of the podium should be for winning on the Sunday. Um, so I'm really glad they did that because it could have been. I think it could have been a bad move if they decided to go overboard celebrating the sprint race you've, now, you celebrate the sprint race like you got pole essentially did you like the truck they used when they put a garland literally like a wreath for american listeners it's like christmas happened they put a wreath around them and they drove them around in a truck with an open window to wave to the fans i thought that was the funniest thing i've ever seen <laughs> to have the three drivers who finished in the top three in the flatbed area of a semi waving out a cutout window with a wreath around their head, a garland, as it's called, it was formerly used in Formula One. It just, it was so bizarre to me. Like, <laughs> all right, we're going to show you the winners and we're going to drive them around in a semi. Like, what? <laughs> right, so to close this section out, um, Sunday, you have the race. So regardless of what mechanism of qualifying, it's the same deal on a Sunday. Uh, have the race, finish the race, and give points to the top 10 drivers. Um, that point format has changed a little bit down the years. It's always a little bit misleading when people type, start talking about who's the highest uh, point scorer of all time because back when I were a lad, I think it was 10 points for um, a race win, and now it's 25. So you go top 10, go 25, 18, 15, 12, 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, and 1. And you can get a bonus point for the fastest lap. But to try and stop people who are back markers just kind of going in on the last lap and putting some fresh tires on and trying to score a championship point, um, they basically said you can only get that bonus point if you also finish in the top 10. So it can be a strategic way of robbing somebody in the top 10 of a point, um, but you can't win a point if you're outside the top 10. That's a really good point. I mean, a lot of teams dealt with that this year, actually, uh, with stealing that fastest lap point away. Uh, but you had to finish in the top 10 to get the benefit of it for yourself. So it's a great point. And the last line on this is that those points then all accumulate. Um, if me and Brian are both uh, driving for the Dirty Side uh, team, then uh, whoever gets the most points is the is the World Championship driver. But we can put our differences aside and we add our points together under our team. And at the end of the year, the team with the most points gets the constructors' title. So we've, if you listen to the podcast so far, then you'll have heard us talk about Mercedes winning like a gazillion constructors' titles in a row, and that's what that means. That's the team Mercedes winning the championship, not necessarily individual drivers. Last thing I'll say on this is we should do a topic here. Uh, my a different friend in Detroit, I have too many Detroit friends, uh, Mark highlighted driver movement. So they have teams, but they move during the year and they still drive for their old team until the season ends is different from any other sport in the States. So as you mentioned, the constructor championship that drivers participate in, we should highlight that. I think that's a, I think that's a upcoming episode. Well, I'm not sure we can make a whole episode out of it, but let's, let's slot it into one. You, you know, put it down on your notes there, Brian. Done. Done and done. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about the differences in the drivers and the teams. And in particular, I want to highlight as we go through the engines that are manufactured by different uh, engine providers. So let's start off with the teams, Mercedes, obviously powered by Mercedes engine. Um, it's the most successful team of the current era, eight straight constructor titles. Lewis won them a boatload of those. Uh, Valtteri helped Nico Rosberg along the way help. But the current drivers for 2022, Lewis Hamilton, George Russell moving over from Williams. So it'll be exciting to see two Brits driving for Mercedes uh, in 2022. Red Bull powered by Honda, but Honda is in this weird transition phase where last year was the full year of last full year of Honda participation. This is this year they're helping, but now we're transitioning to 2023 where Red Bull will have their own engine manufacturing. So it's sort of this bridge from Honda to Red Bull. The team was formed in 2005. And honestly, with Max being the, the world champion now, they are, I don't want to say best of the rest, it makes them sound uh, less than they are. They are a real uh, contender. They have the current world champion, Max Verstappen, and one of my favorite drivers in Sergio Perez, or Checo, as he's known. He's a great driver. So Red Bull right behind Mercedes last year. Ferrari, powered by, you might expect, a Ferrari engine. And one, uh, of my, one of my favorite on the grid, I got to say, I just got such uh, a soft spot for the for the red car. I think it's something about a red car and the prancing horse. And as a kid, always wanted to own a Ferrari when I grew up. But uh, always, sorry, I, I love I love Ferrari. You know, me too. And they're they're one of the few teams. I think the only team who's been there since the start uh, in 1950. Most successful team in history. They haven't won a title though since 07. I think it was Kimmy. Is that? Uh, I think yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it would have been. Yeah. And they have a fan base of very passionate fans known as the Tifosi. Their drivers are two, I think, tremendous drivers. I think this is the best lineup they've had since they won the title, if not even better than then, with Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz. Um, McLaren kind of next here in the list, powered by Mercedes. Now, McLaren's had different engine providers over the years, but now they're powered by a Mercedes engine. McLaren's been around for a while. Bruce McLaren founded the team. They've been you know, dominated in the 80s and 90s, had a lot of success in the early 2000s. Their last driver title was 08 when Lewis drove from Lewis Hamilton drove from McLaren. But they've kind of been in the midfield since. And, and since Zach Brown has been there as the principal and leading them forward, they have two uh, interesting drivers now, a young Lando Norris, who we talked about early in this podcast around his karting experience, but Daniel Ricardo, who's been around and done so many things, the honey badger uh, came on a lot stronger in the second half of 2021. We look forward to see what McLaren does in 2022. Yeah. McLaren was kind of, you know, and I know you're going to go on to Williams in a second and this comment probably sits for both of them as me as a kid, uh, you know, mid eighties into nineties, that's, those are the two teams that I think of when I think of uh, Formula One. It was always McLaren and Williams, and like every, um, uh, it was Renault Williams at the time. I think back in the UK, uh, yep. everybody wanted to own. Uh, you don't get the, the, the Renault doesn't come over here as a car manufacturer, but it's a big. You know, you, I I had a Renault Clio, which was a, a French. Did you, car. you had a Clio? Yeah, I had a Clio, yeah. So and oh. but I didn't have the I didn't have the Clio I wanted. The Clio I wanted that every boy racer wanted was they did a Williams, uh, Williams partnered up with them and did a, a road car series of a few of them. So there's, if you want to Google, I think it was the Williams Renault Clio, um, matte blue in kind of the Williams racing colors. And it was ridiculously quick for a small little car. I, I want that so a- badly. <laughs> I do. It takes 25 years to get some of these cars that weren't, you know, green lit by uh, our NTSB here, but I would love one of those. 
so anyway, sorry, I'm treading on your toes now because I know you're about to go into Williams, but those two of me, for uh, me, was I think as a kid, that it's McLaren and Williams are kind of the icons that I think of back then. Uh, agreed. And actually, some of the things I think of from back then are the Williams liveries, just the, and for American fans, liveries, paint jobs. Um, <laughs> but so like the Williams team now is powered also by Mercedes. Uh, as Rob mentioned, a big rival to McLaren uh, in the 80s and 90s. They had nine constructor championships. Jacques Villeneuve, last driver to win in 97. And now they have uh, one uh, current driver from last year, Nicholas Latifi, who crashed on lap 52 of Abu Dhabi, caused the safety car. He didn't do it on purpose. Don't be mad at him, but he totally ruined the entire championship. And then they're bringing back Alex Albon, who'd been with Red Bull uh, a year prior. Uh, two years prior, actually, technically, when you're out. Alfa Romeo team is Ferrari-powered. They do not have their own engine provider, so it's not an Alfa Romeo engine. It's a Ferrari engine. Um, it's actually uh, a Sauber team. So Sauber's been in and out of Formula One or uh, over the years. And what's interesting to me is the drivers are both new. So they'd had Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi last year, and Antonio's racing Formula E, and Kimi is retired. And so Valtteri Bottas, who lost his seat at Mercedes, came to Alfa Romeo, should do great things. And the rookie from China, Guang Yuzhou, who's there, I'm really curious to see what they do. I'm, I'm a big, big fan of the Alfa team and can't wait to see what they do. Alpine is sort of the sister brand to Renault, uh, also French. They have the A110 car, road car. It's interesting. Um, but it is powered by Renault. Uh, it's the only current F1 team powered by Renault. There have been others in the years. Uh, and it's a uh, it's French, so uh, it will smoke a cigarette and sit on the side of the track for a while. I'm sorry, am I not supposed to do that? No, and and also if it's like any of the Renaults that I owned when I was growing up, it's electrics will fail at some point. I mean, literally anything that was electric, my electric windows packed up working um, various um, cigarette lighter. <laughs> not not be I didn't smoke, but just using that power outlet for anything else. I mean, literally anything electrical down the years just broke on a French car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sounds about right. So anyhow, uh, Alpine again made its debut last year, but it was Renault before that. Um, and it's Fernando Alonso, who is a former champion and a great driver in his own right. And Esteban Ocon, who won in Hungary last year. Very exciting driver. Uh, we'll see what they have. The American team, Haas, powered by Ferrari. So it's a Ferrari engine. It's the first U.S. constructor. That's what we call the, the teams. They entered in 16. Uh, and last year they made an interesting move because they have lower finances than some of the other teams. They actually decided we're not investing in the 2021 car. We're putting all our money into 2022. And as you may have heard on our last episode, the 2022 car brings a lot of that parity back. So it's Nikita Mazepin, Mick Schumacher. That's Michael's son. Uh, I'm very curious to see what Haas does next year. Two teams left, Aston Martin powered by Mercedes. It's a newer team name, but it has a long history. It was Jordan of the 90s, sold to Midland, sold to Spiker, sold again, and created Force India. And they started kind of having a rise. And then if you go back through any of the Drive to Survive, you'll actually watch them go into administration, or as we would call it here in the States, bankruptcy. And they were bought by Racing Point. And Lawrence Stroll, who'd been an investor in other teams in Williams even at one point, and then they rebranded Aston Martin in 2021. And oh, Lawrence Stroll, who owns the team, his son Lance drives for them. I would love if my dad, if he's listening, Henry, can you buy a Formula One team? <laughs> I'd love to drive. 
So they have Sebastian Vettel, who's a four-time, I think four-time uh, champion in F1. He won a lot with Red Bull, Bennett Ferrari, and now they have him at Aston Martin and Lance Stroll, um, who is Lawrence's son. And he's not a bad driver. He gets a bad rap for being a billionaire's son, but he's he's a fine driver. And we'll see what they have this year. And then the last team, Alpha Tauri. This is kind of interesting, and we may want to do something on this as well. It's the sister team of Red Bull. So it's yeah. the same Honda power unit. It's like they control the drivers effectively at Red Bull for Alpha Tauri, but it's its own team hypothetically. So it's a sister team of Red Bull. It used to be called Toro Rosso, and then they decided in 2020 to promote its line of clothing, Alpha Tauri, and here we are. <laughs> so they, they have two drivers who were both on the team last year, Pierre Gasly, Wildly underrated, great driver, and a second-year man out of Japan and Yuki Sonoda, who showed flashes of brilliance, finished fourth at the final race of the year. I think he, you know, he, I'm curious to see how he develops this year. I'm a little nervous if he'll be in the ride in 2023, but we'll see. Didn't um, I might have got this wrong, and then you can mock me if I have. But didn't Max Verstappen cut his teeth in Toro Rosso? Didn't he start there? Very and briefly. Call up, yeah, because and that's the thing that kind of doesn't jive with me is that. I'm all for them having like a second team, but it's almost like the drivers that are driving in here aren't almost driving for the team. They're driving to see if they can get the real Red Bull seat, which is, uh, we've had it a number of times. We've had like drivers um, swap and like, yes. uh, you know. Albon, Gasly, yeah. Kvyat. And you've got to think, well, it just obviously must be such a kick in the teeth if you're the one going the other way, because it's like, yeah, we've got some news. You're going to just drive on the on the sister team. And it's like, it's not a sister team, is it? That's a demotion. You're putting me... <laughs> It's relegation. It's relegation. Yeah. You're still in Formula One, but you're now at AlphaTauri. So, anyway, those are the teams we look forward to 2022. Okay, what circuits is everyone going to be driving on this year? Let's uh, hit the circuits for the first half of the season. Um, we are going to kick things off in Bahrain at the Bahrain International Circuit. Um, I'm not a purveyor of the architecture of these courses. Um, I know what I like when I see the races, but apparently this is a typical modern circuit with straights and corners, which to me, all circuits have got straights and corners, but that was the right up <laughs> that I found about it. Um, it's one little thing is it's usually floodlit for the night races and it, and it actually maybe not being like a steeped in history or this kind of stuff. It's given some pretty good races so far, I think. Yeah. And with COVID it moved to the back occasionally of the, of yeah. the schedule. And they have a different version of it called the short, uh, the secure grand prix it may be called the same thing, no matter what, but they have the short course from a couple years ago, which was so awesome to watch. It was one of my favorite races. So uh, I really love watching cars go to Bahrain. And, and, and then we go off and we take a big sip of crazy juice as we head to uh, the Jeddah street circuit in Saudi Arabia, which when I was writing my notes up for this, I, uh, I literally just written high speed street track with a crazy combo of speed and walls <laughs> because <laughs> we've covered this in a previous episode, but we just knew before they even raced there that that was going to have like a gazillion safety cars. And it did. <laughs> it did. It was second to last last year. Now it's second from the front. So they don't have time to make any changes. It's as fast as Monza, but with walls. <laughs> what? <laughs> The only thing they haven't got is like spikes coming out of the walls. They've kind of held back on that one. But I mean, I'm waiting for like something to come out of the side, like, oh, you passed too fast, and a big barricade comes <laughs> flying out. I mean, it is it is insane. And I just hope once again, preemptively, everyone is safe. And then we go, uh, hopefully, I mean, I'm hoping, uh, COVID permitting, that we're heading back to Australia, um, which we haven't been to for a couple of years now. I think it usually hosts the opening race. It's a third one now. Um, it, I like it. 
I don't know. I like it from a sentimental perspective. But as I was kind of doing the like digging into this, I kept seeing comments over and over again that you might get a safety car that spices things up, but it's not really the greatest of races. And I was like, no, it must be. I'm sure I love Australia. And I kind of started flicking through some stuff. I'm like, I think it was because it was always first and you had that natural hype of Formula One's back. Yeah. That you kind of could forgive the race. Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know what you think about Australia. Next race. <laughs> okay. That's what I think. We... It's fine. It's fine. Like you said, it's fine. Yeah. Then we go off to uh, Imola, uh, Italy. Um, historic track. Uh, it's also an infamous track. Unfortunately, it's uh, the scene of uh, the deaths of Senna and Ratzenberger. So it's had it's been heavily revamped from safety perspectives, uh, which was a good thing. Um, it was dropped for a while, and it came back in 2020, which I'm I'm glad to see it back on the on the circuit. When F1 goes to Italy, chef's kiss. Just fantastic. <laughs> and then, then we come to the US and all eyes are on Miami to see what the new uh, street circuit's going to deliver. Um, anybody that's been on Twitter will have seen Brian stood outside um, the circuit. So um, other than us getting insanely uh, excited about it and desperately begging for someone to take us there, um, there's not much to say about this one because we don't know what it's going to bring. That's it. I can't play anymore, or we'll get uh, we'll get fined. But uh, I cannot wait for the Miami Grand Prix. It's going to be fantastic, even if it is around a football stadium. But we'll take it. Um, then we pack up after coming all the way over from Italy. Uh, we're going to pack up and go back over again. Um, I love the way they thought this one out. <laughs> we head back <laughs> over to go back to Spain. Um, Paul told us it was a big mess. If you haven't listened to our episode with Paul Harris, he told us how hard it is to go back and forth. And they decided to go from Italy to Miami to Spain. And I'm not <laughs> sure that makes sense, but we're doing it. This one um, kind of, I don't know, because it's Spanish and I kind of, I forced this view in my head, but whenever I see like the view of the track from above, um, I think it always looks like a bit like a bull's head with the two horns on there. Um, it's not the best race in the world. It has an epic long straight and the first corner I think is pretty tight. And then there's a couple of, a uh, couple of follow-on corners after that where all the action happens. And then you might as well just tune out for the rest of the lap and then wait for the next straight attack. Cause it's, but anyway, that's my view of it. It's, yeah, fine. Um, then we head to my favorite, but not the favorite for racing, just the favorite for the spectacle, which is we, uh, we rock up at Monaco. Uh, it's got to be the, the the most famous and fanciest circuit of all of them, but I think it's the it's the millionaires' playground where yachts and celebrities and casino winnings and and all that kind of stuff gets more attention than the races, if we're honest. And we love it because of that. <laughs> we do. Just... It is it is a procession. There's not a lot of overtaking. Um, I would just give a couple notes. One, a couple of years ago when there was finally an overtake. Uh, we didn't see any of it. They showed the Lance Stroll clip of him okay. holding his hands up. That's when Crofty uh, actually says, what is happening? You know, it, it, here it is. What has happened? That's what he, that's why he said that. And so they have their own television direction crew. I didn't know that. Like literally Formula One doesn't control the television episode. It's from the Monaco, like, you know, F1 crew. So it's, it's totally different. And a couple of years ago, Kimmy got in a crash, was so pissed walked out of his car, didn't go back to the paddock, walked to his yacht in the marina yeah. <laughs> and sat down in his yacht in his race suit. And for me, that's just baller level 1000. So <laughs> then we go to uh, Baku in Azerbaijan, which is kind of a tale of two halves of a track. You've got um, the old town where it's very narrow and windy, and then it kind of opens out onto kind of the modern, I guess, the modern section, if you like. Um, 
that this one's kind of in the middle for me. I, you know, it's had some enjoyable things, but it's not one that I'm like looking out for on the calendar. To go, oh, can't wait to go to Baku. But I like Baku, and that's where Charles stuffed it by the castle. I am stupid. Yeah. I am stupid. That's what he said. Is he stuffed it right into the wall by the castle? Anyway, back to you. Then again, hopefully with no cancellations, fingers crossed, we go back to one of my absolute favorites, um, which is the uh, Gilles Villeneuve circuit in Canada. Um, the man-made island, I've been up to Montreal once, I've seen the track, I've not been to the track, but I've seen it from a distance. Um, it's just awesome. It's got the balance of absolutely everything. It's got mega straights, it's got an air pin, it's got fast corners, it's got everything and then right at the end before you start the next lap you got the wall of champions which has claimed many a life well not literally a life sorry but <laughs> a car um someone always bins it i remember schumacher binning it into there uh, one year because it's just uh, the perfect angle through that corner requires you to basically kiss the wall at uh, a decent fair lick of speed and i think you get that wrong and there's no there's no compromise on that one that's great, but let's talk about the real reason about Montreal. The bagels are fantastic in Montreal. <laughs> there's uh, Vi- St. Viator and there's Fairmont, and we will get into this as the race gets closer, but trust me, if you make it to Montreal, you got to check out the bagels. They're fantastic. Then something close to my heart, we go to Silverstone for the British Grand Prix, which actually uh, has a corner named after me, a Vale Corner, which is 100% named after me. Don't go and look into that. Just take my word for it. It's named after me. Um, people will say it's not the track it used to be. Um, maybe it's not. Um, it hasn't coped with the cars getting better and faster and all this kind of stuff but there's still some corners in there that you need to keep your foot for the floor and hope for the best and shut your eyes um it's oh i think it always gives good races but maybe i'm just that's my british bias coming out i love the fact it's a former airfield i mean like someone had a a runway and goes you know what we should do yeah fast cars (laughs) (laughs) um then we go to the Austrian Grand Prix, which we covered this when we did our kind of season review um, and we visited it twice back to back. And it was just meh. it it looks when you it, when you and again, I've I'm held my hand up to not being an engineer here or an architect of tracks. But when you look at it, all the pieces seem to be that this is going to be great. Um, there's some uh, climbs and falls and corner complexes and straights. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's got all the re- recipe, but someone just didn't put the Lego pieces together properly. It's uh <laughs> It just doesn't, maybe this year with the new cars, it'll be different, but not, not one I look out for. Then we go to France and unfortunately not to Manicourt, which was, I used to love Manicourt. We go to the Paul Ricard uh, or Ricard. I'm not sure how you say that. <laughs> well, um, you know better than me. And uh, as I was looking into this, it just kind of said, you know, everyone's opinion was races have just been dull. Um, but maybe it hasn't had a fair crack of the whip. It was dropped in 1919, it only recently came back onto the circuit in 2018. So uh, maybe it will be better with the new cars. But I think you've got a certain sweet spot and a love for this track, right, Brian? Well, tw- 2021 was its best race that I'd seen at Paul Ricard, but uh, the paint job on the runoff areas. So basically, they, they tarmacked the whole area and then made the track. And anything that's not the track, they just painted it red, blue, and white, or blue, red, and white, or I don't know the order. But it's got like concentric kind of paint job circles going around it. And if you look at it at the wrong time, you'll throw up because the cars <laughs> are going by at 220 miles an hour. And it is, yeah, it's not my favorite track, but you know what? I saw in 2021, it was a good race. I enjoyed it. It can be redeemed. I'm looking forward to 2022. Okay. And then we finish up the first half of the season in Hungary at the Hungara Ring. Um, it's one of those races where if you get on pole, you've got 
massive uh, advantage. If you get away clean from pole, then I think I didn't look into the stats and maybe I should have done, and maybe it's a sap stat at some point, but um, I think pole has led to being the winner on a number of occasions. There's not a huge amount of overtaking opportunities on this one. Rob, thanks for taking us through the first half of the year. So in the second half of the year, we have uh, starting off the tracks at the Belgian Grand Prix, Spa, Francorchamps. So it, it's a favorite of Rob's. It's a favorite of mine. It, it, it has elevation up and down, high-speed corners, slow chicanes, the bus stop chicane. Other than last year, it's a classic. Last year, the weather, totally a farce. We won't even get into what happened last year. But it's so fast and it's so tough. Um, they're actually making some changes, thankfully. Um, they're changing Eau Rouge and Radion because in 2019, F2 driver... Antoine Hubert was lost there, uh, a friend of many of the F1 drivers. So they're trying to take, and even last year in the rain, Lando crashed out pretty violently uh, in qualifying, trying to get through. So they're trying to take some of the, a little bit of the danger out, but it is a long, fast, awesome, beautiful track. The weather, though, does play uh, just chaos with it. The, yeah, I, got uh, to, I got nothing to add to, because other than just to echo that I love it. I, I yeah. always look forward to uh, Belgium. Um, and it's not one of the circuits that's going to need my idea of uh, random sprinklers because Mother Nature pretty much does it at some point <laughs> over every weekend. Always. Next, the 15th race of the year, the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort. Um, it is a recent re-edition, has some serious remodeling over the years. They have kind of a banked carousel-type corner in the middle of it, um, but it is just basically a huge orange Max Verstappen fan club. And I would say... When you watch it on TV, it's it's so cool because it's right next to like the the you know seafront resort, and it's basically like New Jersey, but hold on, uh, less less chlamydia. And so I'm just <laughs> I'm kidding, Jersey. I'm kidding. My wife's from Jersey. I'm making a joke. But so it's like it's you have a boardwalk and you have carousels and you have all this cool stuff, and then right next to it is this amazing track in Zandvoort. So I love watching it. It was cool to watch. And then that banked kind of corner that I'm mentioning was just chaos in 2021. I can't wait to see 2022. Following that is the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. This is known as the Temple of Speed. Um, it is amazing. Um, they have the high-speed Lesmo corners, which come after the early chicane where Max ran on top of Lewis and tried to roll his head off with his tire. Most of the track is flat out. Uh, Charles Leclerc had a massive crash at Parabolica a couple years ago, uh, which is the last corner coming back to the straight. I'm doing this with my hand so those on the YouTube can see it. And so I love watching Monza. It is high speed. You can see the old track around it. It is just super cool um, and fun to watch. Yeah, love it. I love, uh, love Monza. Although, and, and I am a little bit childish that I always think that as a kid, whenever they said about the Lesbo corner, it always sounded like Lesbo. And then we always used to giggle at that because we were kids. But there we are. <laughs> no one thinks that except you, except everybody. Uh, so the, the Russian Grand Prix is next, 17th race of the year at Sochi. Um, it is normally thought of as a boring race. It's a recent track, 2014. Um, you know, good straight first few corners, but not a lot after that. And the weather though, can be a factor. And the reason I say normally a boring race last year, the weather came in and it came into certain parts of the track first. And if you haven't seen or, or watched, check out the Russian Grand Prix from 2021. Uh, if you're a Lando Norris fan, you already know what happened. Uh, bring your Kleenex. It's sad, but it was just an amazing race. I watched the last eight laps of that race over and over because it is just filled with drama. 
Um, and I'm looking forward to the next year. Uh, I hope the weather doesn't play quite as much a factor, but I also hope the racing is better than normal. So we'll see what happens. In 18th position for the, the, the calendar, Singapore Grand Prix, obviously in Singapore. It's a street circuit, which has had multiple driver criticisms from the surface, the curbs, the pit lane. They had this one chicane, they call it the Singapore chicane, where you kind of go around it, you launch into the air. It is, it's disgusting and fantastic at the same time. Fantastic because you never see an F1 car airborne like this that then lands and keeps going, but disgusting because all of them break eventually after they hit this <laughs> thing and they, they keep grinding it down, but it is a night race. It's pretty exciting to watch. A lot of cars hit the wall. Um, I definitely watch it because you never know what's going to happen. It's one of those Howard Stern type things. You just want to watch to see what happens next. And then following that is 19, the Japanese Grand Prix at Suzuka. It is an amazing circuit. If you played yep. pole position as a kid, Suzuka was one of the, I mean, Suzuka has been around forever. Straights, chicanes, high-speed corners. Just watch it. The, uh, we haven't been there in a few years because of covid I cannot wait, and I hope we are back at Suzuka. It would be amazing. Agree. Yep. Love it. 20th is the U.S. Grand Prix at Circuit of America, also known as COTA. It's in Austin, Texas. Uh, it could be a great race. It's fun to watch the start. It's kind of banked upwards. You go up the hill into the start. Um, the track kind of needs a resurface. It feels like they're driving over potholes half the time and you watch cars start falling apart that it's similar to spa and kind of that, some of the rising and falling. Um, I think it could be a great race and I'm looking forward to being a great race. And I would just say it's fun to watch as, as an American, it's fun to watch the American F1 celebrities show up to Coda and you kind of see who they are. And part of it is local. You get Matthew McConaughey. All right. All right. All right. And you get, but you get other people. Danica Patrick is somehow commentating because she's famous. You get Chris Bosch who was there and Shaq pulled up in the, my favorite was when Shaq. Shaq pulls up in a Cadillac limo, open topped cow horn, bullhorn thing, and then hands out the trophies. But Shaq wants to be part of something. So I don't know if everyone saw this during the trophy presentation. He stood up there and stayed and he stood on the ground next to the drivers, but was taller than them on yeah. the podium. So, <laughs> yeah. so you've got all these great memes of like Max and just being towered over by Shaq, but Shaq's on the ground and Max is on a podium and Shaq didn't want to leave. He's like, nah, I'm just going to hang out here in the middle of the whole deal. Shaq is and no the, one's, no one's going to move him. <laughs> I mean, he's seven foot one, 380 pounds and hilarious. And I love that guy uh, to close it out. We've got a couple left here. A few left here the Mexico Grand Prix at uh, Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez. I love this race. I love it because of the stadium. Yeah. So it's like three parts. Yeah, a little bit of street, a little bit of permanent track, but then it comes into the stadium where it does kind of like a nice, almost Erpin type kind of 90 and then back out. But it's literally in a stadium where people are in risers all the way to the top. I would I would kill to sit in that stadium and watch cars go through. That would be the greatest. It's, it's, it's just a, beautiful. It's, a, it's an actual baseball stadium, isn't it? I think it is. I think yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, if it's not, we'll go play, but it should be. <laughs> And then we go all the way over to Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, down, I should say, all the way down to uh, my globe in front of me to Interlagos, which means between the lakes. Um, it's an amazing circuit. It is so much fun to watch. Great wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing. It has a little bit of rises and falls, but it has, if you kind of time it right, and again, we mentioned this with our guest Paul Harris a few pods ago, in 2021, Lewis gave a masterclass and how to kind of come out of the last few turns and get into the straight at full speed and then overtake 
as they went up the straight and then down into the next set of corners on the home straight. Just check it out. It is there are overtaking opportunities. Um, and Max pushed him off at turn four. Four? I may be wrong on that at this point. It's late, but so it was just wild to watch. It was a great Grand Prix, great weekend, probably one of my favorite weekends uh, in the last few years. And then we close it out with Abu Dhabi, which I believe at Yas Marina has always paid to be the last race. So they've paid extra to F1 to be the last race of the year, and it never really delivers. Um, Kimi is famous, once said, uh, the first few, corners, first few corners are good, and then the rest is beep. And so it's uh, it, they tried to redesign it in 2021 to make it better racing. It didn't really work. Michael Massey saw to that. We won't, we won't get into that. Yeah, no uh, more maybe, of that. No more of that. Come on. No more of that. Maybe the new cars will help. But I would point out that when they redid the circuit for this last race in 2021, um, they'd shortened the amount of laps because they'd cut some of the, the distance off and Mercedes had apparently not updated their computers. And it was not something that was really highlighted in the, in the race, but in the team radio, Lewis didn't know how many laps were left at one point as he's fighting for the championship. I thought that was hilarious. So anyway, my last note on Abu Dhabi, anything Rob you'd add to the last few races? No, no, I think you've covered uh, everything there and just can't wait for the whole thing to get going again now and uh, hit those tracks again. Another thing to think about as we kind of look at the races are the tires and the pit stop strategy. So this one is a little bit inside baseball, um, but I or, want to kind of make for, for everyone else listening. This is a nerd incoming nerd attack. So Brian's going to nerd <laughs> out on tires now. So if you need to go and put a cup of uh, cup of coffee on, then uh, just just do it now. Well, here's the new SAP stats still. SAP stats. So um, Pirelli are the tire supplier for all the F1 teams. And so all teams get the same tires on every weekend. They get the same allocation. So there's not technically a tire advantage. Everyone gets the same amount of the same tires. This is only the third year of the system, I would note, though, because they used to be able to choose the allocation of the tires they got a little differently. There are three dry tires at every race, three, a hard, a medium, and a soft. There are two wet tires. The dry tires are sort of slicks, as I'm used to calling them, where there's no real tread or, or pattern to them. But the wet tires have different depth and tread of pattern. And the two wets are the green stripe intermediates, or as people would call them, inters. And the blue stripe, sort of the Noah's Ark, you know, get two of everything and let's get the hell out of here, full wets. And so it's very rare when you see the full wets come out, the blue stripes. The greens though, are pretty common when you get a drizzle, light rain. Um, has better handling, better traction, the enters. The three that they bring for the, the dry races, though, the red is the soft, the yellow is the medium, and the white is the hard. And I'm going to say this again because I'm about to make everyone confused. The red is the soft, the yellow is the medium, and the white is the hard. Why is it confusing? Because technically, and you'll see this on the race, there are five, well, there's five, five compounds of dry tires. C1 is the hardest and C5 is the softest. So at any given race weekend, Pirelli are going to bring three tires in a row to that race. However, they're not always the same. So it's going to be different every time. The softest will always be the red, the medium will always be the yellow, and the white will always be the hard. But like at Silverstone last year, they used the C1, the C2, and the C3. So the C1 was the white hard. The C3 is the soft red. And then you go to Abu Dhabi to end the year. 
and the soft, they have the softest, the C3, C4, and C5. So now the C3, which was the red soft, same tire at Silverstone, is now the white hard, same tire at Abu Dhabi. So it is very confusing, but they always bring three in a row. Could be the C2, C3, C4, C3, C4, C5. It doesn't matter. Back to my point. Red is soft, yellow is medium, white is hard. And so why does that matter, you may say? The reds are the softest. They get the fastest grip off the line. They wear off the fastest, though. They wear down and they lose traction. They're not as good. They turn into a big, hot, gooey mess of tire, uh, and you start losing time. However, the whites are the inverse. They last the longest, but they start off like bricks. You're going to get the worst traction off the line. They take the longest to warm up. They may last the longest, but you're going to have the slower speeds in the beginning. And so that makes it interesting for one thing that we really haven't talked about in qualifying. If you get into Q3, the last qualifying session, the top 10, you have to use the exact tire you finished with in Q2. So now I'm not saying the same type. I mean, the exact same effing tire. So when you finish Q2 qualifying, if you make the top 10, they put a mark on it. That's what you start the race on. So you have to kind of do a strategy to say, what kind of pit stop strategy am I on? What tire do I want to be on? Everyone in Q3, the last qualifying session, uses softs because you want to do one lap that's as fast as possible and you don't have to use it for the race. Everyone goes with softs. But so the tire strategy in qualifying and then to the race means a ton. Yeah, and uh, I know you're going to get onto the strategies in a second. So just before you segue onto the strategies, on, on the tire choice piece, um, I've got to be honest, you've just taught me a whole bunch new because I didn't really know a lot about this. So thank you for that, Brian. But the thing for me that's always interesting is is you mentioned about the wets and the inters. And, and the fascinating thing for me is that gamble when you have a drying track, it's wet enough that everyone's going around on inters. Um, and there's that sweet spot where, you know, there are so many people studying lap times to see, hey, that guy just went in for slick. So he, if he can make it round in a faster time than the inters, then you see everyone pile in and change. And it's that swap over between a wet and a dry. And I can't remember the race now. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of the driver. There's a classic race where half the track was wet. I think it was Barrichello. I think it was Barrichello. It's going back a number of years now. Half the track was uh, dry. Half the track was wet. Everybody went in for uh, inters and he stayed out because he worked out. He was confident enough to drive in the wet part, ice skating on slicks on the on the wet part. But when on the dry part, it was dry, like proper dry. Um, so anyway, sorry, I let you get back to no, nerding. On I, I think I think it was I think it was actually Turkey in 2020 or 2019 when Lewis dried out and he was on a pair of inter set of inters. And instead of coming in. And this is will help us out. You lose about 20 to 24 seconds on a pit stop. Instead of losing that time, Lewis stayed out on the inters and burned them off, burned the tread off. When he came in to finish the race, which he won, which gave him the uh, driver's title that year, it was basically a slick. There was no mm. tread in the, in, in the middle of the tire and the camera crews caught it. It was brilliant. So as I was saying, there's a whole, there's a whole team of strategists to Rob's point. They watch and they think about this. There's literally a team of people with computer simulations to say, if we're going to lose 20 to 25 seconds a pit stop, it has to be worth it. So the second interesting thing, in addition to the qualifying tire choice, is that in every race, in a dry race, you have to pit and change compounds. That is a rule. You cannot come in on mediums and go out on mediums. If you start on mediums, you have to move to something else before the race ends. So as they do this, it's fascinating to figure out what their strategy is. So everyone will have to pit once. Sometimes it's better to pit twice. But again, a team of strategists figures this out because the amount of time you lose as your tire degrades 
or as they call it, DEG. As the DEG occurs, you want to figure out, is it faster to take that hit of 20 to 25 seconds, depending on track, the layout of the pits, how long it takes to get in, how long it takes to get out? Does it offset that by being 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, maybe even up to 0.5 seconds a lap faster on the new tires. And so yeah. you weigh that uh, uh, against the things. And what's fascinating to me is there's this thing called an undercut. And I want to highlight it because um, I don't think enough people kind of like get into this process. But what happens is a, tie, a car that could be out on worn out tires may pit before the car in front of them, in front of them. So they're behind, worn out tires, they'll pit. What happens is they come out on fresh tires. They're just caning it around the track. They're just flying. And even if the car in front of them pits on the next lap, they went an entire lap on the worn out tires, whereas the car that had pitted already is on the fresh. And when that happens, you can actually overtake the car that comes out next. So what'll happen is car in front, car number one, car number two behind, car number two pits, fresh tires, does what's called the out lap as fast as possible. And the in lap of the car in front of it, car number one is so much slower that when they come back out both together, car number two has overtaken it. It's called an undercut. So if you hear about the undercut, what that means is the tires have fallen off enough. It's time to pit. The car behind is pitted earlier. They're on fresher tires. And that makes such a difference regardless of compound that now they've pulled off the undercut. And it's not often it happens, but when it does, and in certain tracks, it's very powerful, especially with higher degradation or deg. And the other thing, I think the final thing on the tires is that what I love is when you get the um, opposite strategies of two teams. So you'll get the guy that's like um, trying to sort of coax these tires home uh, a second a lap slower than the guy that's just pitted behind. But he pitted to get the soft one so he can go on the attack. So he's a good full kind of like, I don't know, yeah, the full pit stop. He's 25, 30 seconds behind. And you're like, well, he's got no chance now. But the, the difference between a brand new soft on full-on attack mode where you can break late, carry speed through corners versus the guy that's kind of limping around on the worn outs. We've seen races where those leads are just, just eaten into and you can see it coming and you, you'll you hear the commentator saying, look, now when we're coming into the back straight, you can see the car that's chasing coming into the view behind and you think, well, that's miles to catch up yet. And we've had some great finishes to races because of different tyre strategies. So wow. although it's a nerdy nerdy subject uh it does give some good racing i hate to say it but at the end of abu dhabi i mean that was the point like oh, max yeah. max pitted under safety car put on soft tires lewis yep. was on 40 lap old hearts which were had were bricks and then were good and now we're just worn out and so max put on fresh softs against 40 lap old hearts 40 give or take i'm, I'm, I'm estimating here there was no chance Lewis would win that. That's my point. That's when we talk about why people don't think it's fair. And someone was arguing to me, Mercedes should have pitted. Uh, again, I'd say you never give up track position, but we're not relitigating. Right, no, no, the I'm, I'm waving the ban hammer on this we're conversation. Moving. Moving we're moving So let's cover flags. Um, flags play a big part in Formula One and you'll hear about them all the time. Um, so let's just quickly go through what these mean. Um, yellows are the ones we hear about a, a lot. Um, basically all mean danger 
and they come in three flavors. You'll hear people talking about there's a, a yellow flag and it just means there's danger near the track. Then there's a waved single. Oh, there's a waved single in sector one. Uh, it means there's danger <laughs> on the track when they're waved. And then you get the good old double waved, um, which is uh, block track. Uh, really need to back off when you're under double yellows. All three of them. It doesn't matter which flavor of yellow. You can't overtake in the, in the zone that is being governed by uh, a yellow flag. Um, yellow and red stripe. I'm not sure I've ever even seen one of these, um, but uh, slippery track due to oil. Uh, it could be water, but usually kind of some sort of slippery surface ahead. Uh, green is everything's great. Uh, get going again. So if you've been through either the like maybe the whole session was uh, under yellows or what have you, or just one particular sector was under yellows, you're going to get the green flag when it's great to go racing again. Um, I think and all these flags, by the way, um, there are physical flags, flag wavers on the side of the uh, the marshals, but I think you get the lights on the dash as well. So the drivers are actually getting kind of the LED equivalent of it as well. When you say dash, um, it's like literally on the steering wheel. Steering it's like wheel, they sorry, they don't really have a dash. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a dashboard on their steering wheel. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, then we get the blues, which are the ones that always cause the controversy because the driver behind never thinks that the guy in front is obeying the blue. So what's he supposed to be obeying? Well, if you're basically the, uh, the slow guy at the back, the blue flag means get ready to move over and get out of the way, slow coach, because the real right races are coming around. Um, so when Lewis or Max or anybody is coming around to come and uh, overtake back markers, then those cars are going to get the blue flag. They need to find a, a safe spell, spot to kind of pull out of the way and let them pass. And if they get three waved blues in a row, then they're going to get a penalty. And there's been a number of drivers down the years that have been uh, historically rubbish at getting out of the way of blue flags. Well, Nikita uh, led the <laughs> led the league in uh, blue flags last year. So hopefully Haas is better this year and that's not quite the same situation, but we'll see. Then we get the red flag. Uh, the session has been suspended or stopped. So we saw that in... Uh, uh, Belgium, when they red flagged uh, things, Abu Dhabi got red. I know Abu Dhabi, yeah, Abu Dhabi got red flagged, or it should have got no, red flagged. Should have got, got red flagged. Red flagged. Oh, did not. We're not talking about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Saudi Arabia, Jeddah did the, the race That's before. Right. Jeddah, we had the multiple restarts. Jeddah. Um, then we get the black and white flag, not the checkered version of it, but uh, a kind of a diagonal stripe, and it's um, for football fans. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying my, my word. I'm saying my football. Uh, it's like a yellow card. It's a warning. Um, it might be for going over track limits, dangerous driving, whatever it might be. Uh, it's it's a warning. And if you get a repeat of a number of times, uh, then you're going to get the black flag. Black flag is the one you don't want to see. That means you have been disqualified, return to the pits, go and sit in the corner, hang your head in shame, uh, and you're black flagged. The last one is the one that everybody wants to see first, and it's the checkered flag. It's the good old black and white checkered flag at the end of the race. Um, so when you really hear, when you're watching it on uh, TV, no one really mentions the checkered flag that much, but we'll often hear about, uh, hey, he's being blue flagged, he's being blue flagged, or there's waved yellows. Those are the kind of the, the more common ones. So there you go. You now know everything you need to know about flags. I, I would say the double, double wa waved yellow easy for me to say is the most common thing that people struggle with. Like Rob mentions, there's the stationary yellow, the waved single yellow, and then the double waved yellow and the penalty for ignoring those is different. And they take them very seriously. So when you watch, as you mentioned, keep an eye out for, for those, those flags. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of an F1 glossary you know, kind of just a good feel for what some of these terms mean. And we are the Dirty Side of the Track podcast, the leading Formula One podcast out of the Americas. And so let's talk a little bit about what the dirty side means versus the racing line. So 
as cars kind of use the circuit, all the debris from the tires and around the track, it gets blown off the racing line uh, that the cars follow. And the racing line is obviously the fastest way around the track, just to explain that you hit the apex, find the fastest way out, and then back into the next corner. So as that stuff gets blown off to the other side of the track, the debris can kind of accumulate whether it's on the left-hand side, if you're going fast on the right or whatever it may be. And so the dirty side of the track is where all the little pieces of tire and car and carbon fiber and dirt and whatever accumulate. And what they call that are the marbles. That's the main culprit of the dirty side. It's bits of rubber that come off. They pile up on the dirty side. um, And these small rubber pellets are known as the marbles, which fill up a good portion of the dirty side of the track. So we haven't lost our marbles. We're full of marbles on the dirty side. Uh, um, speak for and, yourself. And that's, <laughs> and that's what you'll hear quite often. Like when someone puts uh, throws something down the outside and then spin off, you quite will often hear the commentators talk. He's lost it on the marbles. So if you hear anything about marbles, it's the little rubber pellets off the tyres, like Brian said. Um, what can lead you to uh, go off the track as well is kind of um, getting caught in dirty air. We'll hear, you'll hear dirty air all the time, and it's got nothing to do with kind of how clean that air is or telling some rude jokes. Um, it's literally just the turbulence. We covered it um, on one of the previous episodes when we talked about the new cars for 2022 being designed to not create this dirty air. So it's just the choppy air that's thrown off the back of the car, um, like the turbulence that a plane hits. So when you hear people talk about dirty air, it's that wash of turbulent air coming off the back of the car in front, um, which leads us on to people talking about loss of downforce or how much downforce setting have they got this week. Um, Think about the way that uh, air flows over a plane. A plane is designed that when air flows over that wing, it creates lift and takes the plane into the sky. And a Formula One car is kind of an upside down plane. Uh, The air flows over it and pushes that car down into the track. Uh, the more you get pushed down in track, more grip you get, the more uh, speed you're going to be able to carry through circuits. So downforce is the uh, is the force of the air pushing the car down into the circuit. So you'll hear um, them talk about high-speed circuits are going to be low-down-force low circuits, and twisty-turny ones tend to be high-down-force circuits because you can sacrifice the speed because you want the cornering speed. So downforce plays a big deal in F1. So when a driver has to come into the pits, their mechanic or engineer will get on the radio and say, box, box, which means come into the pits. It's time to park in the box that is painted in front of our garage, not garage, and we will service your tires and possibly your wings, but that's all they would do. Uh, And then I talked a little bit about tires earlier, Uh, blistering, the imbalance sort of of temperatures that can occur. And you get the outer surfaces and the blisters, they pop through causing grip issues. And then sort of the opposite of that is graining, where the outer layer of the tire heats up too much and sort of melts and sticks to itself to create an uneven grain surface. Again, both blistering and graining create grip and performance challenges on the tires. And the last tire note I'd give hopefully forever is that if a driver brakes too hard, and this is one of my favorites, Max did this in Saudi Arabia. If you brake too hard and lock the wheels, because they don't have anti-lock brakes, you lock the wheels, you start sliding with tires that aren't moving. What happens is that sliding just cuts the tire off and it flat spots. It, It creates basically a um, a big patch of flatness. And so when you start driving again, now it's like boom, 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 boom. As you go around, it creates vibration, slows you down, and it really impacts your grip as the tire rolls around. And so flat spots are not something any driver wants. And it's a mistake when they, they break too hard and they cause a lockup. Next on our glossary is one that uh, Brian's kind of already hit, but we're going to cover it again in the glossary section here is the undercut. 
um, which is just to basically overtaking people in the pit stops, utilizing your pit stop strategy to be quicker around. And when they go in, uh, you'll have already flown around your outlap at high speed and uh, jump over them. And you'll hear this a lot because they'll refer to different circuits because of the length of the pit lane and how long it takes to come in. Because it's not just those insane 2.4 second uh, stationary pit stops. Um, everyone thinks of a pit stop as being amazingly quick, but when you actually take into account the amount of time it takes to leave the track, there's a... Is it 50 kilometers per hour or is it 80 kilometers per hour? I can't remember what the 80 is, the um, speed limit when you come into the pit. Although it feels when you're driving that out on the re regular road, that feels quite quick. In one of those cars, it's ridiculously slow. And as Brian said earlier, you can, you can be losing anything between kind of 24 seconds for the whole thing. So very powerful. Next one that we've got, I'm not sure we're going to see it this year, but we're going to cover it anyway, because I'm not sure about the new car design, if, it, if it's still going to be there. I couldn't find anything online around this. And it's called Bottoming Out. And uh, the commentators will mention it when you kind of see this big shower of sparks behind a car as they as they drive through. Um, it's not anything breaking or falling off. Um, it's actually part and parcel of underneath every single car. There's a, a wooden plank, which in the high tech world of Formula One still amazes me. There's a wooden plank. Uh, I kind of have visions of it like bolted on with rusty bolts, but um, there's a <laughs> there's a plank underneath that makes sure that every car is driving is riding at the correct ride height, um, and they've got to make sure they stick to that after the uh, the race, otherwise they can get disqualified. Um, and what they basically do to prevent the damage of the plank is they put these titanium skid blocks. Yeah, there, there's the modern aspect. It's the titanium <laughs> skid blocks that go on the wooden plank. You make it sound like you're driving a Morgan Arrow. <laughs> it's still they couldn't come up with a better thing than a wooden plank but anyway yeah. it's as uh, as you get the undulations of the circuit these titanium skid blocks can sometimes catch the circuit and you get those fantastic looking shower of sparks at the back with the new cars and the under uh, under uh, the car ground effect stuff and the channels i'm not sure if the barge board is still there uh this year uh, not the barge board the the wooden plank but hey we'll see so uh, when a car is at the back, we'd mentioned this when we talked a little bit about flags in, in an earlier segment, uh, it's a back marker. The cars that are at the back of the field, you hear this a lot as the race progresses and cars get lapped. And the back markers are literally cars that are getting lapped and they have to get out of the way of the leaders. And what they don't want to do is interfere with the racing that a leader and the you know second car may have with each other. So the back markers kind of have to get out of the way and let the lapped uh, the cars lapping pass through. And, and what's fascinating to me is, you know, there are often times where these cars that are really caning it and going for it have to kind of lift and coast. Lift and coast being the idea that they need to conserve fuel and or protect tires. Um, so they lift off the throttles, they head into a braking zone. You actually have to finish the lap, or sorry, the race with how much? A liter of fuel? Do I have that right? I don't know. Some predetermined amount of fuel needs to remain in the car. So yeah. Seb, Seb finished second in at a race in 2021 and was disqualified because he didn't have a liter of fuel in his Aston Martin to provide. They actually had him pull over on the track as soon as he crossed the start finish line, knowing they'd maybe not put enough fuel in to get through the race, trying to lighten the load, lighten the weight. But uh, you either protect your fuel or your tires at the end. And Lewis, by the way, in case anyone cares, and Checo, two of the best tire protectors uh, on the grid. 
Okay, then we get to something um, which usually comes into conversation after somebody's crashed out, to be honest, because somebody blames the brake bias as not being set correctly. But they're not talking about people being biased towards brakes. Um, they're talking about the, the balance between the front and the back wheels. So a perfectly uh, balanced car is going to have the brake, bias, uh, the brake bias set up just as the driver likes it, so that as he hits the brake pedal, everything goes the way that he wants it to. But when when they have too much uh, brake bias on the on the front tires, then you can get this situation where the kind of the front brakes bite too hard, and and we kind of see things uh, spinning. But they'll also take the kind of the um, the surface, if it's, especially if it's a wet race, they might switch uh, more bias towards the rear of the car so that they don't get that kind of front end biting in and sending people around in a three sixty. <laughs> um, my next one on our glossary here, uh, DRS. Um, Commentators actually do a good, uh, I think they realize they're throwing the acronym around all the time. They quite often um, explain it, but it's the drag reduction system. Um, it was a kind of a, a crutch introduced to try to get around the dirty air problems. So crutch. a crutch, not a crutch. Crutch. No, I didn't say a crotch. Yeah, you did. <laughs> At least it sounded so in your British accent, but keep going. Okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Um, at certain points on the uh, track, there is a DRS detection zone. And if you, if you are within one second of the car in front, then your DRS system will magically spring into life uh, and be enabled, um, which means that then the, I think it's usually two kind of straight sections on that circuit. The uh, a flap in your rear wing will open, which gives you magical turbo powers. Um, and I can't remember the differential. I, I want to say it's like 14... 40 miles per hour, uh, something like that kind of. It depends uh, on the length of the DRS zone, but yes. Yeah. So um, it's a way of being able for you to be able to get out, pull out of that dirty air, uh, get that turbo charge and uh, go past them. It's worked with varying degrees. Some circuits, the DRS system is just too powerful and it's just like a gimme overtake. You know, it, once you get within that second of the car in front, you're essentially going to overtake them as soon as you get to the DRS zone. But it's, I think they've, they've kind of tweaked it down the years and uh, we'll have to see how needed it is with the new cars this year. So one of the things people ask is what is the perfect track, right? And it's not necessarily sort of a green track that they just rock up and go drive at. Uh, if you are watching Formula One all the time, in 2020 at Turkey, they had a track that had been recently resurfaced, and it's like ice. What happens is as the cars go round and round, the track gets rubbered in. You'll hear this, this phrase, rubbering in. And what happens is as the tracks – stop laughing – and as the <laughs> tracks – the dirty side of the mind. And so as the tracks get rubbered in, um, the tires kind of give off a little bit of the rubber. It's almost acts like a tacky film. It allows for cars to corner faster. Um, and throughout the course of the race weekend, the tracks get more and more rubbered in from all the cars going around the rubber coming off the pieces being out there. And I would actually highlight in 2020, I think it was again, at Istanbul for sure. Um, they actually took street cars. This is true at night when the, they couldn't safely race race cars. And they had them turn their headlights on and race around on the racing line as much as they could to keep adding rubber to the newly asphalted track. So I, I love that story. Um, another couple things, oversteer, understeer. Um, this is in F1 and in regular cars. Uh, the idea of oversteer is when you're steering your car and your rear end comes out too fast and starts sliding around behind you um, and you have to overcorrect your front wheels. The difference is understeer 
which is, I think, worse because what happens is you turn your wheels and nothing happens. Uh, you, you say, I'm going to go make this corner. You turn the wheels and you just keep going in the same direction you were going in. So oversteer is easier to correct than understeer. Um, understeer is a common front wheel drive car situation. Oversteer is common for rear wheel drive cars, but it happens to both uh, to Formula One cars. So they have to watch, the drivers have to watch that as they're powering through corners. Yeah, you start to see them. Uh, a lot of these things will all stack up on top of each other. And I think as you start to see tire degradation kick in, you'll start hearing um, Brian's favorite, you know, good old uh, driver radio where they start just complaining about uh, the fact the car's starting to understeer, oversteer or got blistering graining. It's uh, tire moaning and uh, steering problems are kind of, I think, some of the favorite mo- <laughs> moaning moments over radio. Okay, we've got a couple left on the glossary. Um, we have got uh, the Halo. Um, open cockpit cars and used to be truly open cockpit if you go back and just google some images from kind of 15 20 years ago there is really nothing in front of or around the driver's head at all um uh, horrible incident uh was bianchi was it was in suzuka yeah jules i can't remember yeah. if it was suzuka or not yeah i know what you're talking about though yeah and kind of uh, uh straight under a recovery vehicle and uh yeah, we won't go into the gruesome details of that one, but one of the things they, they piloted a number of different um, designs to kind of increase head safety, to maintain the open cockpit kind of uh, look and, and feel of the sport, but while also increasing driver safety. So now you've got this uh, protective uh, shell. It's not, I don't know what you'd call it, a halo, I guess. It is a halo. It's like a ring yeah. of uh, safety around the driver's head. Uh, came into play massively with Lewis and Max this year when the back wheel of uh, Max's car basically sat on Lewis's head, but also on the on the halo system as well. So and it, it uh, clearly saved Roman, uh, Roman yeah. Grosjean, uh, 2020 Bahrain. Yep. So good addition from a safety perspective. When they talk about the halo, that's what they're talking about. Um, Brian's already hit um, Apex. I'm sure a lot of people watching motorsport know what an Apex is. Um, but if not, then essentially every corner has got uh, uh, its own fastest racing line through it. And it's got three main sections. It's got the entry or the turning point where you need to commit to the corner. And it's got the apex, which I think is, I can't remember the technical term, but it's the the closest part to the inside of the track uh, between the entry and the exit. And the exit is obviously the exit. So you'll often hear them talking about needing to hit the apex, um, especially on qualification, because the perfect qualification lap is when you hook up hitting every single apex uh, at the best amount of speed. You'll see them not hit racing line on purpose sometimes during race conditions because maybe they're looking to if you're following a car in front you might be trying to get out of the dirty air you might be trying to just um fool them into thinking you're making a move when you're not so you'll often see cars moving around so uh, they're not always going to be trying to hit the apex but if you're just trying for pure speed then that's what you're after uh yeah i've got nothing more to say about apexes brian i'll just say i've done a lot of high performance drivers ed days and they often put cones at the apex apexes uh, of each corner, apex of each corner. So, you know, the closer you get to the cone, the better you did. And uh, I've never gotten that close because I'm not that good. So <laughs> uh, formation lap, it's at the start of the race. You may watch and you'll see everyone with their teams getting their cars set up on the grid and then everyone leaves, but then they kind of take a dilly dally around. It's that formation lap. It's the time to get around where they get their car tires warmed up a little bit. They get their cars kind of moving um, and it gets the team a chance to clear the grid fully and the cars come back, park in their spots and they're ready to go for the actual start of the race. I mentioned box box before the opportunity to get into the pits, the paddock in the pits. That's where all the work gets done, um, behind the pit wall, the motorhomes, the storage, the transportations, 
the pits are the garage themselves. Um, but then the paddock is behind it, uh, one side of it where they get all the work done. And they usually have a dedicated access road to, so people can get in and out of that area during the race without having to go over the racetrack. And then Rob closes out with your favorite French term. Parc Fermé. I'm not going to try a, I'm not going to try a French accent there, uh, but it literally means in French closed park and people are constantly on about uh, under park Fermé conditions and, and, and it gets referred to all the time. Um, I knew kind of what it was, but then researching this one, I actually kind of went and read up on what it really is. So <laughs> this was actually a little bit of education for me as well. But I knew that um, at the end of each race, the FIA bring in their scrutineers to check all the cars to be compliant with all the rules after a race. So whether it's uh, withdrawing the uh, fuel out of the car or whether it's um, uh, looking at uh, that wooden block underneath the car, but essentially um, it's they check the cars for compliance and then release the car back to the team. Um, and nothing is allowed to be touched while it's in there. As soon as you drop the car into Park Ferme, the park is closed and you may not go anywhere near your car. What you also have is at certain points during a race weekend, they will declare that certain parts are under Park Ferme conditions. So the car might not physically be parked in the Park Ferme at the end, but they will say uh, if the car's on the grid or whatever it is, you, you can't make any changes to the car when you're under Park Ferme, although you can. Because F one B and F one always has to have a list of exceptions. So there's a there's some there's a permitted list of things you're allowed to do. So when you're under Park Fermi, where you're not allowed to make any changes to the car, you can make the permitted list of uh, changes. And Just everyone wonders ev everyone wonders why this is a confusing sport. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll hear that a lot, and that's where all the cars have to go at the end. And that's why sometimes the race result can be like Brian said earlier. You'll get the podium, you'll get all the points given out. Everyone thinks the race ended a certain way, and then one of these scrutineers can kind of come up to the race director and go, uh, "Excuse me, um, but that car didn't pass X, Y, Z," and you get disqualifications. It can come through hours, sometimes a day or so after a race has taken place. I think that concludes our glossary section, Brian. So I'd say thanks to everybody for, you know, tuning in and appreciating some of these different terms and components of F1 teams, drivers, flags, glossary. We hope this was helpful for everybody. We appreciate everyone listening in and, and always join us on the dirty side of the track. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.